Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're going to discuss a problem-solving principle that many of you have probably heard of and that we've, we've definitely referenced on the show before, and that is Occam's Razor. That's right. It's, it's one of the classics. It's one of the hits of like the skeptical toolkit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a really good one to get into because it's something that is uh, widely known but in different ways and often uh, to whatever extent it actually does have value – it often gets deployed in ways that do not actually make use of its value. Right. Like, a, like an actual razor blade. It may be misused from time to time. Yes. Um, now, one, one specific place that I know we've talked about it before is that is in the context of Carl Sagan's uh, recommendations for the, the tools of skeptical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lays these out and uh, one of them is Occam's razor. He writes, Occam's razor. This convenient rule of thumb urges us when faced with two hypotheses that explain the data equally well to choose the simpler. Okay. Now, why did we end up talking about this today? We, we were in the studio the other day uh, discussing upcoming episodes, and you said that Seth had mentioned this, our, our producer Seth. Yeah, I was in here, and Seth uh, Nicholas Johnson was working on a crossword puzzle. Was it the New York Times? He tells us it was the New York Times, uh, and he, he asked me how to spell Occam, as in Occam's razor, and I took a guess at it, and I... I can't, I can't remember if I was correct. I was probably wrong, but also probably hit one of the multiple acceptable spellings for Occam's razor. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, we started talking about it, and I was like, oh, yeah, we, we could do that as an episode. And so here we are. I'm very glad we picked this because I think one of my personal favorite genres of, uh, of critical thinking is, is being skeptical about the tools of skepticism. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people who identify as skeptics can, can, can I get a little cocky. You know, they get a little too sure of themselves about what the reason tools they use. And it's worth putting those tools to the test, giving them a closer look. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have to say, I definitely remember the first time I encountered the concept of Occam's razor, or at least the first time I encountered it, and it on some level stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And that was when I viewed the 1997 film adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel, Contact. Uh, (laughs) The movie I can't watch without crying. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, why does it make you cry? Oh God, there's Are there are multiple parts. No, I no, it's just it's poignant. Like especially the first part where you know it zooms out from the Earth and you're hearing the radio signals go back in time, and then and then it shows the young Ellie Arroway experimenting with the ham radio and her dad's helping her, mm-hmm. and I get so emotional. I don't oh, know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a very long I mean I haven't seen it since it initially came out. And in fact, the main thing I remember from it is this scene in which Jodie Foster's character, uh, Eleanor Arroway, uh, has having this conversation with Matthew McConaughey's character who – how old was Matthew McConaughey at this point? I don't even know how old he is now. He's just like this ageless demon. Uh, but anyway, he has his character uh, – he plays his character <laughs> named Palmer Joss. Uh-huh. And in the scene in question, Foster's character brings up Occam's razor in a discussion on the nature of God. She, she says, well, which is ultimately the simpler hypothesis, that an all-powerful God exists or that human beings made God up in order to feel better about things? And then this ultimately comes back around as kind of flipped on her later on in the film regarding her character's encounter with an extraterrestrial intelligence. Right. Is it more likely that she really had the experience she thinks she had with uh, with all these aliens or that she like hallucinated something that would give her emotional closure? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I was in high school at the time. So it was, a, it was an interesting concept, especially in the context of, of atheism versus, uh, you know, faith in a creator deity mm-hmm. uh, to, to suddenly have this tool from the chest of skeptical thinking just thrown up on the table and, and seemingly used by both sides. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I think this is funny. This is a great example because it highlights some of the most common features of Occam's razor as it is actually used. Like – it's often invoked in a kind of fuzzy way, like mm-hmm. without an objective measure, uh, just kind of invoked to back up your intuitions about the probability of something, right? But another thing is that this example shows how it's not always easy to find a way to compare the simplicity of two different propositions. Like, is the existence of God a simple hypothesis or a complicated one? That 
I think that really depends on kind of how you feel about it. Like, it, like what kind of objective measure can you come up with to evaluate that question? Right. It's going to depend so much on your like your background, your culture, what you grew up with, and just you know, like how you how you've come to view the the possibility of, uh, of of God's existence. Is it just kind of the bedrock of your your worldview, or is it this thing from the outside that you are contemplating? And also, how do you view it at, like the coherence of the idea? Do you view it as something that's like uh, – that's full of all these little kind of ad hoc accommodations or something that is a holistic, coherent uh, sort of like fact about nature? Yeah. You know, it, it's uh, – it, I, I think this is a perfect example that shows like – when people use the idea of Occam's razor in a way that is not helpful mm-hmm. and doesn't really doesn't really get you any closer to figuring out what's true. Now, if you're one, if, if you're still questioning like what the concept really means, don't worry. We will get to some. I think some some very understandable examples of how it can be uh, used properly and used uh, improperly. But let's go ahead and just start about. The concept itself, the the, the word Occam, uh, and uh, you know where this comes from. We'll get to the origins of Occam's razor. So Occam's razor is also known as the principle of parsimony, and parsimony means a tendency toward cheapness or frugality. Right. So, so I like that. It's like the principle of parsimony is like you, you want to be cheap with your with your logic. Right. Yeah. I don't need more than two steps of logic between <laughs> me and the solution. Uh, you know, don't give me one with four or five. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it was named after the medieval English philosopher William of Ockham. Of course, William of Ockham. Uh, so he he lived in the 13th and 14th centuries from 1285 to either 1347 or 1349. I've seen different death dates uh, given for him. I've seen different birth dates as well. Oh, yeah. Like 1287 or 1288. That's oh, okay. what I was looking at. Oh, that's interesting. So he was a prolific scholar, Franciscan friar. We'll get more into his ideas in a minute. I, you know, one thing I've always wondered is where the heck is Occam? I've never heard of that. Well, yeah, because the word sound, it has kind of like a remoteness to it. It sounds yeah. alien in some ways. Occam is very much a real place. It is a rural village in Surrey, England. You can look it up online. You can find like, the website for uh, the, the church in Occam, for example. And th- this area has been occupied since ancient times. It's about a day's ride southwest of London, and it was the birthplace of the individual who'd come to be known as William of Occam. Now, beyond that, beyond the fact that he was born here, we don't know a lot about William's life. Uh, we don't know what his social or family background was or if his native language was French or Middle English. As Paul Vincent Spade explains in The Cambridge Companion to Ockham, he was likely given over to the Franciscan order as a young boy before the age of 14. And here, Latin would have quickly become his language of, of, of not only writing but also just conversation. Mm-hmm. Greyfriars Convent in London was likely his home convent. Uh, but later he traveled. He visited uh, Avignon. He visited Italy. And he lived the last two decades of his life in Germany. Now, philosophically, William was a um, nominalist. And Spade writes that the, the two main themes of this for William were the rejection of universals and ontological reduction. And these two themes are, are not necessarily interconnected. Like you, can, you, could, you could believe in one but not the other and, you know, and vice versa. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but uh, basically, like, let's, let's get into what these mean. So the first, the rejection of universals, is perhaps best considered, and, and this is very brief and broad. Uh, certainly you can find <laughs> so much uh, written and, and said on this topic. But uh-huh. basically think of it as a rejection of the platonic idea of the realm of forms. So that idea that all chairs that we might make, that we might design and carve and assemble are an attempt to create the perfect chair, which doesn't reside in our world but only resides within this realm of forms. Mm -hmm. So all chairs that we create are like an aspiration for the ideal chair. Another way I've thought about it, at least as I understood it, was that nominalism is kind of the idea that there is no such thing as a chair. There's Mm -hmm. only this chair and that chair and this chair over here. There is no chair. Right. Like this is – this is the kind of the situation one gets into when you you get into uh, like the genre classifications of 
say, albums, artists, or movies that you care a great deal about. Mm -hmm. And someone tries to limit it to a a classification and say, oh, well, that's classic rock or that's alternative rock. And you're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Don't don't try and and fit. There is there is these categories do not apply. There is there is only, you know, whatever your band of choice happens to be. There is only tool. There is only primus or whatever. Right. Yeah. There there is only things, not categories. Right. Now, let's move on to the second theme here. Ontological reduction. This is, as Britannica defines it, quote, the metaphysical doctrine that entities of a certain kind are in reality collections or combinations of entities of simpler or more basic kind. Uh, I think your classic example here is molecules, atoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, another example here is that while Aristotle defined 10 categories of objects that might be apprehended by a human mind, and these would have been uh, translations vary on, on, on how you want to define these, but substance, quantity, quality, relative, place, time, attitude, condition, action, and affection. William cut these down to two, substance and quality. He's really getting in there. <laughs> That's the razor. That's what a razor does. Yeah, uh-huh. it, just, it slices away. It cuts off the, the fat and gets down to the meat. Spade writes, quote, although these two strands of Occam's thinking are independent, they are nevertheless often viewed as joint effects of a more fundamental concern, the principle of parsimony known as Occam's razor. Okay, so we're getting to the razor here. Yeah. So William devoted a lot of energy to arguing against um, uh, what Spade uh, calls the bloated ontological uh, in- inventories of his contemporaries, and he became well known to his peers for this. Uh, as such, either towards the end of his life or shortly after his death, a kind of greatest hits album uh, came out uh, <laughs> on his thoughts and ideas titled On the Principles of Theology. Now, it wasn't actually by William of Ockham, but it featured his doctrine as well as verbatim quotes. Uh, There was no ascribed author either, so later generations would often just attribute it to him um, as well as the notion of Ockham's razor. However, this specific phrase was apparently never actually used by him. He never no. said, Occam in the house, I'm going to get the razor out and right. start carving on some, uh, some, some, uh, some, some ideas here. No, this is something that is attributed by others to his yes. work. Yeah, Occam's razor is a, is a name for this principle that is supposed to be kind of a summation of several different thoughts he articulated in different ways. Yes, yeah, he summed it up uh, in, 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 diff- in different manners uh, and spade and includes a few examples of this in his work. For instance, here, here are some quotes from Occam. Beings are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. Okay. Or plurality is not to be posited without necessity. Or what can happen through fewer principles happens in vain through more. And there are other, uh, there, there are other uh, uh, examples of this as well. Uh-huh. We're basically saying the same thing. But maybe like it just comes off a little flowery, at least in translation. Yeah, I think the the simple version you could get to uh, that, that's summarizing some of his views here, like uh, don't make assumptions you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Don't pile on explanations that are not necessary. Yeah, and, and also just don't take more steps than are necessary to get from point A to point B yes. in your reasoning and in your hypothesis. Uh, And the way this usually gets translated into modern thinking, as we've talked about before, is that when you've got competing explanations, it's better to tend toward the simpler one, the one that makes fewer assumptions, rather than the more complicated one that makes more assumptions. Now, here's another fun fact about uh, William of Ockham. William of Ockham is key to Umberto Eco's uh, excellent novel, The Name of the Rose. Yep. Uh, this was a, a novel that was published in 1980. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the uh, – certainly the, the, the film adaptation that starred uh, Sean Connery, F. Murray Abraham, um, Christian Slater and a host of wonderful character actors. And then there was – there's a more recent miniseries adaptation with John Turturro that I have not seen mm-hmm. but uh, I should probably see at some point or another. But at any rate, the, the main character in – Echo's novel is William of Baskerville. Who is in many ways similar. He's a Franciscan mm-hmm. friar. He's got a kind of empirical streak. Yeah. He's basically a mashup of uh, William of Ockham and Sherlock Holmes, thus the Baskerville, alluding to uh, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh-huh. Uh, and the title itself, The Name of the Rose, has, has been interpreted as being a reference to Occam's uh, uh, nominalism. There is no one rose. There is only the name of the rose. But there are also other, I think, interpretations on it, and it's meant to be kind of cryptic. 
Now, according to – I was reading more about this and it's been a, been a little while since I've read In the Name of the Rose. You've read it more recently than yes, I have. Yes, because we were misremembering. We were thinking, now, was it, was, the, was it the case in the book that William of Ockham was supposed to be this fictional main character's mentor? I but somehow no. had that in my mind as well. No, instead it was another uh, medieval scholastic thinker. It was Roger Bacon. Yes. So, uh, so yes, Roger Bacon was William of Baskerville's mentor as opposed to William of Ockham, who I do not believe is uh, – Ockham is actually mentioned in the novel. No. Uh, so I, I was reading a little bit more about this. There was a 2018 article that came out in Philosophy Now by Carol Nicholson titled Ockham's Rose. And she pointed out that Echo had apparently explored the possibility of simply using Ockham as his main character uh, in, in this novel. Uh, but he ultimately, quote, did not find him a very attractive person. <laughs> and therefore, I mean, and that makes sense, right? If you're, uh-huh. It's like you can either lean on a historical figure or you can do something a little more fun and do a mashup of Occam and the great detective. And ultimately, I mean, that's one of the fun things about the novel is that, is, is that you do have these elements where it's, uh, it's Sherlock Holmes going up against uh, Borges, you know, that kind of sort of thing. Mm-hmm. She writes uh, – this is interesting as well just to draw the parallel between William of Baskerville and William of, of, of Occam. She writes, quote, in 1327, the year in which the name of the rose is set – Occam faced 56 charges of heresy and was excommunicated after escaping the protection of Emperor Louis of Bavaria. This put an end to his academic career and he spent the rest of his life as a political activist advocating freedom of speech, the separation of church and state, and arguing against the infallibility of the pope. She also points out that Occam, like the fictional William of Baskerville, uh, likely died of the plague. Mm. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue our discussion of Occam's Razor. All right. We're back. All right. So we've been talking about this principle known as Occam's Razor that uh, we've described already as the idea that simpler hypotheses are better than more complex hypotheses. There are a number of ways you can formulate it, but it's a principle that's been referred back to actually since probably before William of Ockham. It Mm -hmm. it is, I think, a principle that somewhat predates him in intellectual history. Right, right. He did not not create something that was not already um, uh, utilized by other thinkers of the day and thinkers before him. Mm -hmm. Uh, One great example of somebody not before William of Ockham but later articulating similar ideas is Isaac Newton in his great work, The Principia Mathematica, from 1687, uh, Newton writes, quote, We are to admit no more causes of natural things than such as are both true and sufficient to explain their appearances. Uh, so a similar idea is there's no need to add extra explanations when you already have an explanation that is, number one, true, mm-hmm. and number two, explains everything you see. Right. So an example of this might be, uh, why do the planets orbit the sun? This would be something that Newton would be concerned with. Newton would say, okay, we know of two forces that explain what we see, gravity and inertia. Inertia is the tendency of an object in motion to stay in motion. Gravity is the mutually attracting force between two objects with mass. So because of inertia, the planets flying through space want to keep traveling in a straight line at a constant speed. And because of gravity, instead of traveling in a straight line, their path bends around toward the sun as they travel. And so those two things are both true and they explain everything we observe. Now, actually, not quite everything, but they were good enough for Newton's time explaining everything. You might also say, though, that maybe in addition to gravity and inertia, there are angels that guide the planets in their orbits because those elliptical pathways are pleasing to the Lord. But if somebody proposes that, you're, you're kind of stuck because there's no way to prove the angel hypothesis wrong. You can't right. say there aren't invisible angels guiding the planets. But pretty much everybody today, I think even people who believe in angels in, in some sense would not see any reason to believe that there are angels doing that because there are other explanations which do all the explaining that needs to be done. Right. Yeah, I mean, once you drag angels into it too, it, it opens up the door for uh, just a, a never-ending list of reasons why the angels can't be detected, or why the you know why the angel why the why the planet seems to be behaving this way mm-hmm. uh, that's in accordance with these known laws rather than uh, the machinations of an, uh, an divine being. Right. And and you don't need to appeal in any way to the additional plausibility of angels or not. Like uh, the reason I said that even people who otherwise believe in angels. Mm-hmm. 
don't say that they're guiding the motions of the planets is you don't need them to explain that. Right. You've just got basic laws of physics that explain what the planets are doing. There, there's no reason to add an angel's explanation. It doesn't do any more work. Yeah, it doesn't even help angels out. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, it's there, there's just no point in it. Now, of course, sticking on the theory of like the motions of the planets for a minute, of course, we would have to later come up with a more refined theory of gravity for those rare cases where Newton's theory of gravity would fail. And we would get that with Einstein and general relativity, uh, which recharacterized gravity as the curvature of space-time caused by deformation due to mass rather than as a mutually attractive force between objects. Though in most cases, if you think of it as a force in, in the Newtonian sense, your predictions work out just fine. Uh, but from an article that I, I want to refer to later by a philosopher named Elliot Sober, uh, he writes, quote, Albert Einstein spoke for many when he said, quote, it can scarcely be denied that the supreme goal of all theory is to make the irreducible basic elements as simple and as few as possible without having to surrender the adequate representation of a single datum of experience, which in a way is, again, articulating something like Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. It's saying, like, you want the simplest possible explanation that explains everything. And if we're sticking with Einstein for a minute, uh, to go beyond positing something like angels, if, if you want to go into real scientific hypotheses in history, there are all kinds of things that you might argue were sort of done away with by an Occam's razor-ish kind of process, though I think there are some uh, historians and philosophers of science that might disagree there. But one example that comes to my mind is the luminiferous ether. You know, it was once believed uh, by many scientists that there had to be a medium in space through which light propagates, right? The same way that if you want sound to propagate, there's no sound in space, right? You've got to have sound traveling through a medium like air or like water or like a, you know, a, a, like a steel wire. There must be matter to transmit that energy. And so the idea was that space was filled with this stuff, this ether that light waves propagated through. And eventually due to Einstein and to other thinkers and experiments, it, it started to become clear that the ether was superfluous. You didn't need it to explain any of the properties of light. Now, there's another example from history that often uh, comes up when people talk about Occam's razor. It's often brought up as a great example of Occam's razor being applied. Uh, but we're going to get to an article later on that I think has presents a pretty devastating case against this being true. But just to set it up here, it is the idea of comparing the Ptolemaic universe versus the Copernican universe, which obviously this argument was uh, – brought to a, a very dramatic end uh, in the life of Galileo, right? Galileo got into big trouble with the Inquisition for, among other things, there were also politics involved, but for, among other things, advocating the Copernican model over the Ptolemaic model. Uh, for simplicity's sake, the Copernican model of the solar system was, of course, the one we know to be more basically correct, not totally correct, but more correct because it was heliocentric. It put mm -hmm. the sun at the center of the solar system and argued that the other planets, including including the Earth, all rotated around the sun. Uh, this, of course, was not the orthodox astronomy of the day. The more favored models were the traditional Ptolemaic model, which had the Earth at the center and the, the planets all going around the Earth in these strange kind of uh, spirograph patterns that had these things called epicycles where they would sort of stop and then do a circle and another circle and like loops within their, their traveling. Um, uh, and then you had some compromise models like the model of uh, Tycho Brahe. Now, the, the traditional argument here in favor of saying, you know, Copernicus and Galileo were on the side of Occam's razor, it, it would go something like, well, the, the Ptolemaic system and the, and the Tycho Brahe models, they've got all this extra stuff you need to assume, all these weird extra assumptions like, like epicycles, you know, like where the, the planets are going around in loops and it's not explained exactly why they're doing that. You just have to insert the loops in order to make it match our, ex, uh, our, our observations. And therefore, the Ptolemaic model was more complex. Uh, we'll come back to that later on. Because I think now it's going to be important to get into some criticisms of Occam's razor. You know, I, if you go into especially a lot of like kind of skeptic communities on the internet, mm -hmm. you might sometimes see people treating Occam's razor as if it is some kind of law of nature, like referring to Occam's razor in the same way you might refer to proven theories about reality, uh, such as, you know, the equations describing the action of gravity or something. Uh, and so I think while Occam's razor is an interesting and sometimes useful skeptical lens to apply, 
It is not, in fact, a law of nature. And, th and there are a couple of major branches of criticisms of ye old razor. Uh, I think the first would be like accusations that it is often misunderstood or misused. And then second, there would be actual attacks on the usefulness of the razor even when it is in its supposedly true form. Now, the first thing would be pretty simple, and it's just the idea that Occam's razor is misunderstood, misquoted, misconstrued, misused. Uh, I actually – I came across a funny blog post that of all things pointed to a quote from a mystery writer named Harlan Coben. Oh, uh, more who, mystery writers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with this writer, but I, I thought this was interesting. This would – you know, it was just an example of somebody saying, no, you're not using Occam's razor right. Uh, this writer wrote, quote, most people oversimplify Occam's razor to mean the simplest answer is usually correct. But the real meaning, what the Franciscan friar William of Ockham really wanted to emphasize is that you shouldn't complicate, that you shouldn't stack a theory if a simpler explanation was at the ready. Pare it down, prune the excess. And so I think looking at it this way, this fits more with like the uh, the version that we were talking about with Isaac Newton, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily a statement about simplicity as a general principle, but saying that you shouldn't stack things that explain the same outcomes on top of each other because you get no extra usefulness out of that. Uh, another example that I was just thinking of that's come up on the show before is the idea of aquatic ape theory. Oh, yes. This is the idea that uh, – uh, among other things, humans are hairless because for a while our uh, our ancestors uh, lived in, at least partially in the water. Yeah, the idea is you look at a lot of our body features, uh, our relatively smooth skin, bipedalism, layers of subcutaneous fat, uh, the abilities of our vocal cords, all, all kinds of things like that. The proponents of aquatic ape theory say, hey, we've got all these strange anatomical morphological features that are not the same as other great apes. Why do we have those qualities? I think you could explain them all if humans once needed to be in the water. So they needed mm -hmm. to be smooth, you know, have smooth skin in order to be aerodynamic swimmers. And they became bipedal so that they could wade around in the water and you come up with a list of explanations along these lines that they would argue all point to an aquatic ancestry. But there's a wrinkle there because, of course, if that's all true, the question is then why did we retain all those features after leaving the water? You know, humans are not an aquatic species now. I mean, we can go into the water, but water is not our primary uh, environmental niche. So, what? you know, how come we still have all those features? And the, the aquatic ape theorists might say, oh, well, once you came on to the land, it actually was useful to be bipedal for these other reasons, and it Which was useful <laughs> to be hairless for these other reasons. Which then means you could cut out that entire step of having to be in the water. Just right. stick with these are useful for living on the land. Exactly. You might apply Occam here and say if those features turn out to be useful on land, why wouldn't they just evolve on land in the first place? Right. So there is – like you you've, you've end up then creating or, or redirecting to the, um, the hypothesis that is one enormous step shorter. Yeah, and so aquatic ape theory, I think, is one of those things that, like, it would be hard to completely disprove. I think that there is no physical evidence pointing toward it. It would be hard to say this is impossible to have happened, but there's just no reason to assume it. It just, it just like, adds in an extra step of explanations that don't explain anything any better than other explanations could. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if I come home from work and I have, say, beer and bread— uh, maybe I stopped at two places to get the beer and the bread. I got the beer at one place and the bread at the other. Mm -hmm. But I also probably just stopped at one store to get both of them. Both are likely. One is a shorter trip. I feel like you would also have to add in something kind of extravagant, though. It would be like uh, you stopped at the way home and you entered a raffle contest <laughs> in which you won beer and bread. Mm. Uh, and then you also may have stopped at the store, you know, to get something else. But like, right, yeah, <laughs> or I stole beer and bread. It's like when the simple explanation is pro I probably just bought beer and bread. Yeah. Or beer and bread was, was uh, placed in my car by a mysterious stranger. Like these are all <laughs> things that are possible. Yeah. And – could conceivably be the reason that I have beer and bread in the car, 
but uh, Occam's razor slices away the unnecessary steps, the the less likely steps for the uh, the shorter trip between point A and point B. Right. And I think in cases like that, you could say that Occam's razor doesn't necessarily prove a theory wrong, but it is kind of a useful heuristic. Right. It, it might help you uh, use your intellectual time wisely. <laughs> right. Uh, but and and that gets us to the next step, which is the the more comprehensive criticism, the idea that Occam is maybe in fact wrong or not useful. I think in some cases this criticism is true. So maybe we should get into it a bit. The first article I wanted to look at is called The Tyranny of Simple Explanations and it was published in The Atlantic. It was written by the science writer Philip Ball, one of my favorite current science writers who wrote uh, the book Beyond Weird, a really fantastic book about oh, quantum yes. physics that I recommended last summer. Yeah, this is one of your summer reading picks, I think. Yeah, it, it's really good. It's one of those books that you may think you already, you know, you've already read a quantum physics book, you know, you know the basics, you know mm -hmm. you know the the what the interpretations are and all that. I feel like this is one you can still be newly amazed by and learn a lot more from. Right. And true to form, uh, as a great science writer, Ball, I think, makes a, a fantastic case in this article against Occam's razor, against, you know, a liberal use of it. Uh, so he starts by saying, quote, Occam's razor is often stated as an injunction not to make more assumptions than you absolutely need. And in that way, it, it's almost a truism, right? I mean, like, when, when you phrase it that way, I'm, who would say, well, yeah, no, I want to make more assumptions than I need? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, you can come back to, like, a forensic example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, detective work, which uh, even Carl Sagan uh, makes a, you know, discusses this a lot, like comparing science to, uh, to the work of a detective. Mm -hmm. Like, how many hypotheses do you need for a murder, Right. right. And, and, you know, there's going to be the obvious ones that, uh, you know, especially via Occam's razor are going to be the, your primary candidates, that it was someone the victim knew, mm -hmm. that it was like a spouse or a friend, etc. cetera. Uh, Rather than inventing wild scenarios with no evidence to base them on. Right. Saying, you know, certainly getting into possible scenarios like maybe it was the random work of a serial murderer. Serial murders exist. This does happen from time to time. But is it the most likely scenario? And then that's not even getting into wilder possibilities like, well, perhaps it was a an assassin, a spy who mistook mm -hmm. them for another person. Well, that's possible too. But again, more, far more steps than are necessary. The, the, the shorter uh, trip is the more likely. Right. And in terms of not making more assumptions than you need, Ball writes that this is, of course, good advice. If you're trying to come up with a good explanation for something, you add nothing by writing in a bunch of extra complications that don't help the explanation explain anything more than it did when it was simpler. They should Explanations should be as simple as they can be without losing power to explain and predict. Quote, that's why most scientific theories are intentional simplifications. They ignore some effects, not because they don't happen, but because they're thought to have a negligible effect on the outcome. Applied this way, simplicity is a practical virtue, allowing a clearer view of what's most important in a phenomenon. So again, he's saying there that Occam's razor, it's, it's not necessarily that Occam's razor tells you what's true, but Occam's razor makes theories useful. Hmm. Uh, because then he goes on to argue that Occam's razor is, quote, fetishized and misapplied as a guiding beacon for scientific inquiry. So he thinks what, you know, what we're just saying, simplicity is a virtue of theories and explanations because they make theories clearer, easier to use. But it's dangerous to jump from that to the assumption that simplicity is actually a measure of truth. Quote, here the, the implication is that the simplest theory isn't just more convenient but gets closer to how nature really works. In other words, it's more probably the correct one. Ball says this is wrong. Simplicity does not actually tell you anything about which theories are right and which ones are wrong. Uh, he argues there's really no reason to believe that simpler theories better describe nature than complicated ones. And he gives a few examples. He, he talks about Francis Crick warning against trying to apply Occam's razor as a critical tool for theories in biology because biology gets really messy. And he cites examples where it kind of led us astray. Like he, he cites uh, Alfred Kempe's 1879 proof of the four-color theorem in mathematics, which was kind of favored for a while because the proof was considered very simple and very elegant, but it turned out to be wrong. You know, it, very roughly here, it makes me think of something we talked about before on the show about how, um, how uh, evolution 
is is often kind of a miser. It's often cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so part of that, you could you could apply the simplicity model to that and say, mm-hmm. okay, it's uh, that means it tends to, to take the shortest route. It tends to to perhaps uh, engage in simplicity. But at the same time. Uh, it's kind of lazy, and lazy can create these sort of messes. Yeah, where and where, yeah, yeah, where say like some uh, biological structure has evolved, you know, for one thing, but then ends up getting partially abandoned and then reused for something else, and it can get it can get messy, it can get complicated. A million years of shortcuts can turn into a quite circuitous route. Yes, yeah, and so Ball writes that in in his view, he has not found a single case in the history of science where Occam's razor was actually used to set a debate between rival theories. So uh, I I just want to make sure that his distinction is coming through. He is saying it's useful for trying to make theories easier to talk about, easier to understand, easier to apply. Mm -hmm. But when it comes between competing theories, trying to say which one is more true, which one makes better predictions, he has not found a single case where Occam's razor was the decisive factor. And what's worse, he says a lot of people have tried to retroactively apply Occam's razor to historical scientific debates where it was not, in fact, decisive in reality. Uh, And he cites as an example a debate we've already discussed, the geocentric versus the heliocentric solar system. And I thought his take on this was really interesting because I I had been taken in, I think. I had previously thought, well, maybe a, a really good case of Occam's razor is heliocentrism winning over geocentrism because yeah. you, with geocentrism, you just had to make all these weird assumptions about the movements of planets. You have to do extra work to make it fit. Right. That's what I thought. But he actually digs into the debate of the time. Ball points out that in reality, so, you know, we talked about one of the big things being all these epicycles that in the Ptolemaic model, the, the geocentric view, the planets go around the Earth, but they don't just go around. They make all these weird loops and stuff called mm-hmm. epicycles. You had to build that in in order to explain what astronomers saw in the night sky of the planets appearing to regress. They'd go back and forth and stuff. Um, so, so he says we've got all these epicycles. Uh, but Ball points out that in reality, the Copernican model that was being argued about in Galileo's day, the heliocentric model, was also full of epicycles. And this was because Copernicus was not aware of what Johannes Kepler would later discover about the orbits of planetary bodies being elliptical rather than circular. So because he lacked that crucial assumption, that, that important part of the theory, Copernicus also had to build weird little loops into Hmm. his heliocentric model of the solar system. He got the heliocentrism right, but he he thought the planets were moving in perfect circles. That didn't match observations either. So like Ptolemy, he he cheated. He put all these little loops in there to make the model work out right. And it wasn't until heliocentrism was combined with Kepler and elliptical orbits that the epicycles were finally banished. And based on this, Ball argues that there was really no way at the time to suggest that the Copernican system was simpler. In fact, he points out that uh, Copernicus invokes a number of weird non-scientific assumptions in support of his model. For example, quote, uh, in his main work on the heliocentric theory, De Revolutionibus uh, – oh, I'm going to have trouble with this one – De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium – Uh, He argued that it was proper for the sun to sit at the center, quote, as if resting on a kingly throne, (laughs) governing the stars like a wise ruler. That doesn't sound like a very scientific criterion. No, I mean, maybe he's kind of breaking it down for people, you know, Uh but – I mean, of course, he did turn out to be right, but like that, that, that seems like an unjustified assumption based on what he knew at the time. Uh, Ball also points out that by the time Kepler comes around, we're no longer in a situation of competing theories trying to explain the same observations because Kepler had access to better observations. Quote, the point here is that as a tool for distinguishing between rival theories, Occam's razor is only relevant if the two theories predict identical results, but one is simpler than the other, which is to say it makes fewer assumptions. This is a situation rarely, if ever, encountered in science. Much more often, theories are distinguished not by making fewer assumptions, but different ones. Mm. It's then not obvious how to weigh them up. I think this is a fantastic point. Right. I mean, to come back to the aquatic ape theory, like that, that is a, a, one of these rare situations, I think, that it seems to match up, right? Yeah, it's making additional assumptions, and it's like, oh, yeah, we would have to keep 
keep those traits later anyway. You know, we'd need explanations mm-hmm. for that. It just seems like it's making more assumptions. But that's almost never how it goes. Usually the assumption is just different assumptions. And then how do you know which assumption is simpler than the other one? Right. Yeah, the, the, the whole aquatic ape section of the, the – of presumed evolutionary um, advancement is kind of its own epicycle. Yeah, that exactly. can be removed because there's an epicycle in this theory but not in this one. Exactly, yes. I mean, if you're trying to look at like not uh, additional assumptions in a theory but mm-hmm. just different assumptions in a theory – even cases where to us it might seem obvious one way or another which one seems simpler, it's not always obvious to people at the time. Uh, he, he brings up uh, the, the question of Darwinian evolution. Is descent from a common ancestor more or less complicated than the idea of a divine created order? Common descent, I, th- I think that would seem like a less complicated theory to many of us today, but would it have seemed simpler to the worldview of people who were debating common descent in like the mid-late 19th century? Who, mm. You know, you've already got a theistic worldview. That's basically a built-in assumption. Right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah a lot of this does come down, uh, again, coming to what we spoke about earlier regarding the basic religious argument. Mm-hmm. Like if you're coming from a, a really religious background where you've had this um, – this, you know, the, the idea, the reality of a god hammered into you, mm-hmm. and then you're presented with uh, with with the atheist argument. Mm-hmm. You know, you may say, "Well, no that that is that requires far." More, <laughs> there are so many uh, epicycles in your your your, your atheism where my uh, my faith is just clear and straightforward as a whistle. I mean, people did actually argue that way. They'd say, "Look at all this weird stuff you have to assume about mm-hmm. the history of life," and all I believe is there's a divine created order. Yeah, I mean, you, that's it's like a bumper sticker thing, like uh, uh, what uh, God God wrote it. I believe it. Uh-huh. End of story. Three steps I mean, to that theory. I mean, you, yeah, it, it is. Simplicity is often in the eye of the beholder. Like you mm-hmm. don't have. Uh, I mean, it, there are some people who would argue there are cases where you can try to mathematically quantify uh, complications or assumptions or simplicity. But in general, that's really hard to do. You don't have an objective measure that you can apply from the outside. A lot of times it's just going to be kind of fuzzy qualitative judgments, what what seems like less of an assumption to you. Right. You lack an objective measure. People go with their intuitions. Uh, and this does not seem like a good recipe for sorting between theories. So coming back again to to Ball's uh, formulation of of Occam's razor, it's basically like if you have two theories that are competing to explain the same things, they they make all the same predictions. And explain them equally well. Yeah, they explain – they make the same predictions, explain things equally well, uh, but one of them has more assumptions. You go with the one with fewer assumptions. But Ball argues that you almost never in reality get cases where the predictions of two theories are exactly the same. Instead, quote, scientific models that differ in their assumptions typically make slightly different predictions too. It is these predictions, not the criteria of simplicity, that are of the greatest use for evaluating rival theories. Again, I think this is a good point. I mean, theories almost never predict the exact same thing, so why not just judge them on how good their predictions are? Uh, finally, he writes that he can only think of one real instance in uh, in science where there are rival theories that make exactly the same predictions on the basis of, quote, easily enumerable and comparable assumptions. And this one example he can think of is the different interpretations of quantum mechanics, mm. which I think is a fantastic example. And that did not come to my mind, but I think he's exactly right about this. Uh, so we've discussed interpretations of quantum mechanics on the show before. We're not going to go deep on that, but just for a very short refresher, basically we know that the mathematical fundamentals of quantum theory are correct. They make extremely good predictions. Like we know the theory's right, but there's a problem they predict a world of probabilities, not of certainties. So if you have a theory that predicts an electron will be 50% in one state and 50% in an opposite state, but we only ever observe physical reality embodying one state at a time, how do you resolve that? It just does not match our experience of reality. 
So that's where the interpretations of quantum mechanics come in. They're trying to reconcile this difference, explaining why the indeterministic, probabilistic quantum world somehow resolves into the solid, deterministic world that we experience every day. And there are tons of interpretations. You've got like the classic Copenhagen interpretation, which predicts that objects exist in a kind of uh, in a state of superposition until something interacts with them and collapses the wave function, makes them assume one state or the other. You've got the the now popular mini worlds interpretation originating with the physicist Hugh Everett III in the late 1950s. This suggests that reality is constantly splitting into infinite alternate timelines based on the different possible outcomes of unresolved quantum states and, and we only observe one outcome because we are also splitting and the current version of us is only one of many us's that experiences one world at a time. And then you've got a bunch of other theories too. Basically, these interpretations make exactly the same physical predictions, no matter which one of them is correct, the outcomes of our experiments will be exactly the same. So there's no way to test which one is right. Mm. Though in, in a funny turn, uh, Ball points out that Occam's razor has been invoked both for and against the many worlds interpretation. Again, coming back to the fact that a lot of times this just comes down to people's intuitive judgments. Like he quotes the quantum theorist Roland Omnes, quote, As far as economy of thought is concerned, there never was anything in the history of thought so bluntly contrary to Occam's rule than Everett's many worlds. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, you've got a, a modern physicist like Sean Carroll of, of Caltech who advocates the many worlds interpretation specifically because he argues it's the simplest interpretation of quantum theory. He says it doesn't make any additional assumptions. It's the simplest way you can map the theory onto reality. The weird thing about uh, about this too is that I feel like at this point, if you consume enough science fiction and not even just science fiction but general just popular culture, the many worlds interpretation has been – at, used at least casually so often, mm -hmm. then in a way it it feels slightly more plausible just because just due to familiarity, which I realize is not a scientific argument. Like you could right, not yeah. you could not reasonably say, well, I lean towards many worlds interpretation because that's how the X Men work. Yeah, or something my favorite like that. TV show uses it. Yeah. It's got to be real. Yeah. But on, on some, like, level, it still kind of gets into you. It still affects you. I agree. I mean, again, I think this is, this is pointing out some of the weaknesses in how Occam's razor is often applied. It's like people think they're applying some kind of objective criterion when really they're just kind of going with their gut about, yeah. like, what, what feels more plausible. Uh, and, and that's uh, something Ball kind of hammers home at the end when he writes, quote, but this is all just special pleading. Occam's razor was never meant for paring nature down to some beautiful parsimonious core of truth. Because science is so difficult and messy, the allure of a philosophical tool for clearing a path or pruning the thickets is obvious. In the readiness to find spurious applications of Occam's razor in the history of science or to enlist, dismiss, or reshape the razor at will to shore up their preferences, scientists reveal their seduction by this vision, but they should resist it. The value of keeping assumptions to a minimum is cognitive, not ontological. It helps you think. A theory is not better if it is simpler, but it might well be more useful, and that counts for much more. Hmm. Yeah, that's well put. It helps us think uh, rather than help us explain the world. Right. There, there's no way to show that – well, actually, so we're, we're about to get into somebody who <laughs> says that there may be cases where you can show simpler theories are objectively more true. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but Ball argues that at least most of the time in science, in real competing theories in the history of science, it's not that simpler theories are more true or explain reality better. They're just easier to get your head around and test. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break, but we will be right back with further discussion of The Razor. All right, we're back. All right, there's one more article about Occam's Razor that I found really interesting, very useful, and it is called Why is Simpler Better? This was published in Eon by Elliot Sober, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's published a lot on the philosophy of science, specifically as it applies to biology and natural selection, and he wrote a book on the subject of Occam's Razor. Uh, so he starts off, I think, it, this is kind of interesting, talking about simplicity and complexity in art. Hmm. Could you possibly have a norm that one is always better than the other? 
I mean, that seems kind of strange, right? Like we love simple art and we love complex art. And it would be strange to find a person who just wants one or the other. Yeah. I mean, this makes me think of um, of movie posters. I don't – you probably remember. It seems like it was a few years back. The the big uh, craze for a while was that designers would come up with a super simplistic uh, movie poster for a classic film mm-hmm. or a, you know, a fan favorite film. And it was really fun for a while, and uh, and but then it kind of overstayed its welcome, you know, and 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 it just became kind of, at least to me anyway, kind of, kind of irritating to even look at. You're like, no, I don't, I don't want to see like this film reduced to this ultra simplistic symbol. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think there was a counter reaction to yeah. that because then you started to see a lot of graphic design for redoing old movies with new posters in the kind of Return of the Jedi style yeah. where there's a bunch of stuff. There's like a bunch of people on the poster and things happening. Yeah, or that it's just kind of like a geometric explosion of things, you know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, you, you saw the pendulum swing both ways. But but in general, yeah, I feel like it's that way in art. I mean, I think we can all point to specific examples in our own life where here's something we like that is very, very tight and neat and minimalist. Maybe it's a, even like a musical argument. Yeah, I I love like minimalist ambient uh, recordings, but I'm also the type of person who enjoys uh, cacophonous recordings and mm-hmm. uh, complex recordings, and, and likewise with visual arts, likewise with uh, you know film, TV, and other uh, mediums as well. You, you like hugely layered like mix tracks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but but then I also like uh, you know I, I love well, I don't I don't I don't know the, it gets kind of complicated right because even something that is very minimalist can be of course very complicated and. Mm-hmm. And layered, uh, but um, but yeah, I think everybody is going to everybody's taste pendulum is going to swing both ways there. But that's the world of art, though, right? I mean, so that's one thing. That's the world of, of human creation, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes those creations are are made. Uh, to mimic nature, but they are not necessarily nature itself, right? Yes, and I I think you can apply something similar to science. So some of what Sober is going to write in this article mirrors what we were just talking about with Ball. Like he he starts off by saying, okay, it's clear that simpler theories – have some qualities that are good. They're easier to understand. They're easier to remember. They're easier to test. Uh, And, of course, in just an aesthetic sense, they can be more beautiful. But he says the real problem comes in when you're trying to figure out how good is a theory for telling you what's true? Hmm. You know, how, how well does it predict things that you will encounter in the world? Some past uh, scientific thinkers have tried to come up with reasons why, yeah, it's like simplicity uh, is actually better. It actually predicts predicts the world better. And a lot of these justifications were theological in nature. Uh, like, for example, in Newton, in talking about why he prefers simpler theories, wrote, quote, to choose those constructions which without straining reduce things to the greatest simplicity, uh, the reason of this is that truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. It is the perfection of God's works that they are all done with the greatest simplicity. He is the God of order and not of confusion. And therefore, as they that would understand the frame of the world must endeavor to reduce their knowledge to all possible simplicity, so it must be in seeking to understand these visions. So again, I I mean, I would say that's fine to believe, but that's not a scientific reason for believing that simpler things are more likely to be true. Right. You had to fall back on the idea that we have a a lawful good God as opposed to a chaotic good God. Right. I mean, it would only be a bad God that would allow more complex explanations to be correct. And Sober actually says there are some cases today uh, that can help us know when a model is objectively more accurate, like modern statistical methods. There are some ways that you can reduce theories to mathematical advantage, at least roughly, and that in these cases, there there are times where you can show simpler is actually better. Uh, he argues there are three paradigms in which Occam's razor holds true. And so the first one is that sometimes simpler theories actually have higher probabilities. Okay. Uh, he invokes the medical adage here, don't chase zebras. This, uh, this comes from the idea of, uh, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. I've also heard that as unicorns. As another analogy, if you hear footsteps coming down the hall, you could have a couple of different hypotheses. It's a human walking down the hall or it's a RoboCop walking down the hall. Which one is going to be correct more often? Well, it's going to be a human. It could, I guess, conceivably be somebody in a RoboCop costume, uh-huh. but 
the chances of that are pretty slim. I mean, unless you like are in a RoboCop factory or something, it, right. it's going to be a human way more often. And the same goes in diagnosing diseases. If you observe a set of symptoms uh, in patient history that are equally likely to predict a common disease and a rare disease, pick the common one. You're going to be correct much more often than if you always pick the rare one. Right. Um, you know, this also brings me back to the serial killer um, example. You mm-hmm. know, like what what is more more likely, the, that it's someone the individual knew or it is a random killing by a serial murder? Right. You know, unless there is a serial murder active in the area, which raises that, that uh, uh, the chances for that to be true by a considerable margin, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to remain a zebra. Not right. a unicorn, but a zebra. Exactly. Unless you have independent evidence pointing to that as a superior hypothesis, mm-hmm. there's no reason to go to a rare phenomenon that would explain things equally well. Yeah. Though I know it seems like there are enough podcasts about serial murders. It (laughs) might seem like there are more of them out there than there are. Well, there you get into some cognitive biases problems. (laughs) Yeah. The availability heuristic kicks in. Uh, But, uh, of course, another question is like how often does a thorough review actually put you in the situation where two things explain what you see equally well, like truly equally well, one's rare and one's common? Uh, but uh, but so Sober says that you've got this concept he calls the razor of silence. And, and the basic explanation of this is that if you've got uh, evidence that A is the cause of something and no evidence that B is the cause of something, then A alone is statistically a better explanation than A and B together. This goes back to the stacking of explanations mm. that we were talking about earlier. Like if you've got a, an explanation that already explains everything, there is no justification for adding additional explanations on top of it. Mm. Like you don't need to add the angels pushing the planets. Right. Well, let's come back to the murder scenario. Okay. How would we apply this forensically? Uh, well, I, I, Sober actually I think says something kind of like this. But like if you have – clear evidence of one cause of death on somebody, you don't need to assume extra causes of death stacking on top of it without direct evidence of them as well. So if you find like a, you know, a a body, uh, I don't know, a body at the bottom of a cliff Mm -hmm. and they're dead, you can assume that it was falling off the cliff that killed them. You don't need to also assume that they were poisoned or something. Unless, you know, you do blood tox and then it comes back with poison, you can't assume it then. But there's no reason to start stacking on additional assumptions. Right. Okay. Now, there's another way that Sober says uh, sometimes Occam's razor actually does hold true. It, it Sometimes simpler explanations are better. And it's simply that sometimes simpler theories are better supported by observations. Uh, he gives this great example. Suppose all the lights on your street go out. You could have two competing hypotheses. First one, something happened at the power plant. And that influenced what happened to all the lights in the neighborhood. Or maybe there's a down power line, something like that. The other one, something happened to all of the light bulbs at the same time. <laughs> now, these would both explain the observations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like either either all of the light bulbs suddenly went out on their own independently, just coincidentally all at the same time, or there's something happened with the power supply to the whole neighborhood. Uh, Sober argues, based on the work of the philosopher Hans Reichenbach, that in this case you can actually show mathematically that the evidence – for the first – for the power plant hypothesis is stronger just based on the fact that it's simpler uh, and a, a similar example in real science. So look at common descent in biology. So based on the evidence of massive amounts of genetic code shared by all living things today, people usually say, OK, that, that's evidence of common descent. We all share a common ancestor. We all inherit some common genetic code. Now, you could also say, well, maybe all living things on Earth have different ancestors and they just happen by coincidence to have overlapping strings of genetic code. That would require a lot of strange coincidences. So the evidence actually favors common descent just like it favors a power outage over hundreds of simultaneous light bulb failures. So a serial killer example of this might be. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, what, what's <laughs> happening in the dark corners of your brain today, Robert? I don't know. I just keep coming back to it, I guess. But, okay. Okay. So one per. So if like people – there are all these dead people and they all have, say, um, a death's head moth. Um, what was it? Caterpillar? Uh, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Or was it a cocoon? can't recall offhand. 
From Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. yeah, they've got like a moth cocoon in their mouth or something. So perhaps they just happen to each individually wind up with one in their mouth. Like somebody accidentally ate one. Uh-huh. There was one in the salad bar. Another one was like looking up and it fell out of a tree because one had escaped from a private collection and was living in the tree. Uh-huh. Uh, you could have sort of independent uh, explanations for why each of these occurred. Or the other possibility is somebody's killing them and putting them in their throats. Right. The one common explanation actually explains observations better than assuming a whole bunch of strange coincidences. Yeah. And then we get the third paradigm Sober gets into, which is that he says, sometimes the simplicity of a model is relevant to estimating its predictive accuracy. So what do good theories do? Well, they make accurate predictions about things we don't know yet. They either mm-hmm. accurately predict future measurements or outcomes or discoveries. Uh, does Occam's razor have anything to say here? Sober says, yes, sometimes simplicity affects our best guesses about how accurate a new theory will be. And he cites the work of a Japanese statistician named uh, Hirotugu Akaiki, who did important work in a field called model selection theory. This means how to judge the strength of a new model or theory before it has had time to be tested in the field. And a a model evaluation system called the uh, Akaiki Information Criterion says that you can predict how good a new model or theory will be by two measures – how well it fits older existing data, obviously better fits are better, and then how simple it is, simpler models are better. Uh, simplicity is evaluated by, quote, the number of adjustable parameters and having fewer is better. Now, uh, Sober gives an analysis of why this is the case using an example of uh, trying to estimate the height of plants in a cornfield based on previous random samplings of the fields. I'm not going to get down into all the details of this, but if you want a deeper understanding of this one, uh, I'd recommend looking up the article. The, The short version is that in some situations, depending on a number of assumptions about what types of models and data you're dealing with, simplicity of a model is actually a good predictor of how well future data will conform to that model. Uh, And it's just a fact about statistics, uh, the sorcery of averages, not a fact about individual cases on the ground. Okay. Now, he concludes by saying that these three paradigms have something uh, in common, quote, Whether a given problem fits into any of them depends on empirical assumptions about the problem. Those assumptions might be true of some problems but false of others. Although parsimony is demonstrably relevant in forming judgments about what the world is like, there is in the end no unconditional and presuppositionless justification for Occam's razor. Uh, so, so that's tough, right? Like Occam's razor is not a tool you can apply to every situation to get closer to the truth. It's a tool that is useful sometimes for some types of judgment. And the real difficulty is recognizing when you're in one of those situations in which it's useful or one of those situations where it's actually just a logical red herring. Hmm. So really, it, it kind of comes back to, uh, you know, we, we were talking about Sagan at the beginning of this and how he said this is one of the tools in your skeptic's tool chest. Yeah. And the thing about a tool chest is that you have more than one tool in there and the screwdriver cannot be used for everything. Right. I mean, you can try. It's useful for a lot of things yeah. uh, and certainly very useful for screws. But there's going to be a time when uh, you're going to have to pull out another tool to deal with the problem. And there are going to be plenty of cases you will encounter where trying to use the skeptical tool of Occam's razor is like trying to clean out your electrical socket with the screwdriver. Right. I mean, you're just, it's going to steer you astray. And I'm very sorry that in the end here, we don't have like a clean rule to just guide you like this is when you can use it, this is when you can't. I, I think right. it, it comes down to, I mean, Sober has some useful things to say there about like types of situations where it is helpful. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there's, uh, I'm sorry, there's not just like an easy rule of thumb for when the, when the razor will be helpful. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is a tool that was not plucked out of the sky, but it was plucked out of human reasoning and, uh, and, and human problem solving. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, coming back to the name of the rose, uh, I, I want to point out that there is apparently a, a highly regarded Spanish 1987 8-bit computer game based on the name of the rose. No way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's titled The Abbey of the Crime, which was actually, uh, and they conceived it as an adaptation of the name of the rose, but they were unable to secure permission to do so. And uh, they, in fact, I read they didn't even hear back from Echo. They tried to get in touch with them and they couldn't get a hold of it. <laughs> I try to imagine the Umberto Echo essay about this video game, like when he tries to play it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Uh, but uh, basically, the, the Abbey of the Crime, the title they went with, was apparently like the working title for the name of the Rose at one point. Hmm. Um, 
So they, they released it under that name. And instead of having the main character be William of Baskerville, the main character is William of Ockham. Ah. And, uh, and I, I thought that was uh, pretty much the end to it. You know, you can look up uh, footage of the game and all. But then I just uh, learned for the first time, this may be more common knowledge for everyone else out there, um, I, there is a remake of it. Like they did like a revamp version of it with improved but nicely pixelated graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Abbey of the Crime uh, Extensum. Which you can get on Steam, apparently. I don't really do Steam, so I don't really know how it works. But, yeah, um, yeah it's listed on there. It came out in 2016, and it looks really cool. Like, the, for instance, now the, the updated sprites, the little characters in the game, they look so much like the actors in the uh, original film adaptation of The Name yeah. of the Rose. Like, it's a little Sean Connery. And Christian Slater, yeah. yeah. I don't know if they got permission to use their likenesses. Um, How close does it have to be in eight bits? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's a great question. Uh, but but, but my, my other question is, is I would like to ask uh, listeners out there, have, if you've played this, mm-hmm. uh, please let me know how it is. I'm very curious. Not that I'm, I think I will actually play it for myself, but I just am gen- genuinely, genuinely interested in uh, – and what a, a video game adaptation of The Name of the Rose is like. If you know the solution at the end of the book, can you automatically beat the game immediately? Like, yeah, or are there different solutions? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, is it like, a different murder each time? That would be crazy. Arrives at the Abbey, speaks to the abbot, immediately says, I got something to lay on you. <laughs> is Occam's Razor a, an item that you can pick up? Like a plus one Occam's razor that can then be employed in combat. It's like the Master Sword, yeah. Yeah. Surely there is not combat in this game. I should hope not. I should hope it's just a lot of talking, um, occasionally some spells. (laughs) Spells, yeah. (laughs) I cast the poverty of Christ on you. (laughs) Well, in the screenshot I was looking at, it does look like um, the main character, Baskerville slash Occam, does have a pair of spectacles. But then there's like one, two, three. There there are multiple empty uh, spots here. So I guess he gets other stuff. I mean, Mm. I guess various books and whatnot, uh, some lemon juice. Uh, probably some cheese. Some cheese, yes. Or they get like some fried cheese at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But mostly books, mostly books. All right. So there you have it, Occam's Razor. Hopefully we were able to, to, to lay it out for you, um, you know, an explanation of what, uh, what Occam's Razor is, where it came from, uh, some of the various uh, opinions on its usefulness. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so you can take the tool, put it back into the tool chest and know a, l- a little bit more about it the next time you pull it out and go to use it. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this podcast. But ultimately, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We don't care where that is. Wherever it happens to be, just make sure that you subscribe, that you rate, that you review. These are the things that help us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.